The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On the podcast this week, we'll be learning how Britain's sobered up and asking if that is in fact a bad thing. We'll discuss Mongolia's dilemma and ask why it is that Lenin is not as reviled as history's other villains. This week's cover story looks at how Britain is sobering up for going alcohol in favour of alcohol-free alternatives. In his cover piece, Henry Jeffries, author of Empire of Booze, attacks the vice of sobriety and argues that the abstinence of young Britons will have a detrimental impact on the drinks industry and British culture. Henry joins us now alongside Camilla Tomini, associate editor of The Telegraph and herself a teetotaler. Henry, can you start by taking us through what seems to be driving this new teetotalism in Britain? We are not in anywhere near the top countries in Europe for drinking and haven't been for for a long time. So I think we're sort of like 17th place in Europe. I'm not quite sure where we are in the world. And our drinking levels on average started to decline around 2004. So that's you know over the entire population. And it seems like the younger generation, the sort of 16 to 24 cohort, who should really be sitting in parks drinking cider, smoking Benson and Hedges, are are doing something else. Something like a quarter of them, 16 to 24, say that they're teetotal, so they don't drink at all. Um, So I just thought there was something quite interesting going on here, that people were drinking less. And the alcohol industry has noticed this. They are you know, there's a kind of low-level panic going on about that all their customers are getting older and older. Yeah, so I just thought we're not, we are no longer a heavy drinking country. And I thought that was um, was notable. And we can come on to, you know, what that might mean um, in the future. But I, I, thought, I thought that was an interesting, interesting state of affairs. Camilla, you are teetotal. Have you noticed more and more people starting to join you in not drinking? Well, what I've noticed is that There's a bit more variety when it comes to non-alcoholic beverages that you're served at sort of events. So back in the day when I didn't drink, you know, you'd turn up at a wedding and be handed a warm glass of orange juice in the afternoon and think to yourself, why in God's sake would I want to be drinking this? Whereas now pretty much every function has got some sort of non-alcoholic elderflower-based cocktail going on, which wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. And therefore you sort of think about the fact that people seem to be switching on to the idea of going sort of zero alcohol. There's always a zero alcohol beer available to you at any given bar or pub these days. Christmas, in fact, you know, one of my relatives had brought some um, 0% gin, some tankery gin, which was 0%. And quite a lot of the drinkers were having a try because they perhaps felt that they wanted to cut down a bit. So there is this sort of, has always been this soberista movement, particularly among women who want to cut down or stop drinking online or on social media, as the mother of three children, two of whom are teenagers, certainly I think that their attitude towards alcohol is completely different to mine or maybe even Henry's when we were growing up. 
it's almost like the default that as a rite of passage as a teenager, you did, as Henry says, sort of go to the proverbial park bench with a bottle of white lightning and a packet of fags. And that's how you'd spend an illicit evening or a weekend. And I just think the prospect of that for our children, for the Gen Zs, that would just seem like so old fashioned and not something they'd be into. They're far more in image conscious. I think, of course, they're still interested in alcohol because they're interested in doing stuff that their parents tell them not to. And that's why we've seen the sort of surging vaping among the young people, not necessarily smoking, but vaping, because they still want to be rebellious. But they're thinking about their bodies and they're thinking about the effect of alcohol and what it does to them a lot more than we ever did when we were their age, I think. And Henry, you point out in your piece that when Gen Z is surveyed, they say they associate alcohol with vulnerability, anxiety and loss of control. And, and you say that's precisely why your generation used to get hammered for that well, very... Certainly the loss of but... control, yeah. And maybe maybe to kind of to get rid of the anxiety about having to talk to members of the opposite sex. And I think that's something that's very different as well, because so much of their social lives are online. So not just actual online dating, but, you know, kind of flirtation, that kind of stuff can all happen online. Whereas we would, you know, I went to an all boys school. So, you know, I didn't meet a girl until I was about 18. And then when I did, I was kind of crippled with anxiety. So I would I would drink too much. And then there were these just these awful nightclubs called things like kudos and visage and stuff where people would go to try and pull someone up from the opposite sex and you know and just monumental amounts of alcohol were consumed in this sort of way that it didn't really work for anybody and i think if you can kind of do all that online get the kind of flirtation getting to know you sort of thing done in cyberspace, I don't know if people still stay cyberspace anymore, it makes me feel very old, then perhaps it makes things much, much easier. So you don't need the alcohol to kind of lubricate those kind of encounters, as it were. Uh, Henry, it sounds like you're hanging around at the same nightclubs I did in the 90s, if you want to see in Watford. Yeah, well, it's, I was, I, I'm from Amersham. So, um, yeah. Oh, well, Q- I'm, I'm literally down the road in Chipperfield. So Kudos right. uh, was my mainstay. But I was going to say as well, <laughs> I think that the whole sort of filming factor is quite significant in all this. You know, when me and Henry were out on the lash, we're back in Watford, obviously you'd have people perhaps with an instant camera to record for prosperity, us looking a little bit blurry-eyed, but we weren't on camera, so to speak. And I've noticed with my kids as they've gone to parties and they've sort of pointed out that somebody was quite drunk and then had to leave and that, you know, there was the threat that if you do get drunk now at a party, there's going to be this horrific digital legacy that's then going to haunt you for time in memoriam. Now, if drinking is the abnormal and being sober is the normal, if you have had too much, then you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, no, I agree. And I just, I'm just thinking about the dancing that we used to do. Imagine that filmed and then that resurfacing, like my awkward... 16-year-old dancing. And and Henry, how much of this do you think is being driven by government initiatives, you know, government diktats on how much we should drink and, and campaigns such as Dry January and, and Go Sober for October? How much of that is influencing it? Or do you think it is a more kind of individualistic attitude where people don't want to look silly? 
Well, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's the things that we've already covered about, you know, not wanting to look silly, kind of changing tastes. I think there's obviously there's a huge fashion element as well. You know, I think a lot of alcohol consumption is cyclical and who wants to do exactly what their parents did. But I also think that people do grow up being taught that alcohol is in most circumstances, in all circumstances, a bad thing. It's unhealthy. And obviously, in a lot of cases, it is unhealthy. But I think in small quantities, it it, 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 it isn't. And then I think the kind of the dry January thing has really, I think it really hits pubs. You know, you talk to landlords and they're just like dry January is the, is the worst thing because so many of our customers, you know, really good customers just go, yeah, I'm just not going to do, I'm just not going to drink. And even if they don't keep it up, it cuts down on it. So I think these, you know, kind of initiatives have been incredibly effective in maybe not just lowering the uh, the amount of people drink, but also making drinking something that's slightly abnormal in a way that it wasn't when I was younger. Although the conversion of pubs from sort of being pub pubs to foodie pubs is interesting just in terms of, you know, sort of teetotal movement, because people have noticed that the price point of non-alcoholic drinks isn't that different to alcoholic, which is perhaps a discussion for another day of whether that's unfair to sort of penalise the teetotals, but obviously pubs and bars have got to make their money. And as a pub goer, I don't want people to be abandoning pubs and bars, not least after everything that they went through during COVID. But I think actually that kind of foodie revolution, which has perhaps brought more women to pubs, for instance, I'll be meeting with my girlfriends on Friday. Not many people will be drinking, but we will be eating and enjoying life in the pub for somebody's birthday. That's also reflected in younger people. You know, my kids now, a lot of their gatherings, if they're going to the cinema or what have you, are around food. You know, they're likely to spend more money in somewhere like Nando's than they necessarily are. I mean, they are a bit younger. Obviously, they can't go out to pubs legally drinking. But I'm just getting that impression that that has filtered down and that younger people, that 18 to 24 or 30 bracket, they have sort of become foodies. No, I, I completely agree. My youngest daughter, our eldest daughter, who's 12, is interested in food in a way that I just, you know, I don't think I really even noticed what food was. It just it was something that kind of kept you going. You know, I was interested in crisps, obviously, and kind of sweeties and things, but um, actual food, you know, savoury food and stews and things like that, I had no interest in at all. And I think you're right. I think people are much more interested in food. And if pubs don't offer food, then I think they're just going to really have a, an ageing clientele of you know, people like me. Camilla, you've, you've written before about how tiring it can be having to constantly justify your decision not to drink. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your own path to deciding you didn't want to drink and sort of how, and how, how things have changed over the last few years? Well, I grew up with an alcoholic mother, so it was always in the back of my head that I probably wasn't ever going to be the best drinker. And then try as I might, and I really tried very hard in my 20s to be a good drinker. I never was. I mean, it was just one of those people for whom one was both too many and never enough. So when it came to having my own kids, I just knocked it on the head because I just thought there's no way I can manage three children, a full-time career, and being either drunk or coping with my hangovers, which were getting increasingly bad the older I got. So I knocked it on the head when I had my second child, which is he's 13 now. And initially, when I did first stop, yeah, I did get a lot of questioning and, oh, you know, what's wrong with you and you're not being sociable? And I go to weddings and people are like, come on, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. And then, you know, invariably, the people most encouraging you to drink were the ones, the drunkest at the end of the night, begging you to tell them the, your secrets of sobriety. But these days, actually, it's become so much more socially acceptable to not drink that nobody even questions it. That could be 
the fact that people just know I don't drink, so they don't even bother asking. And, you know, I now go to people's houses and they've accommodated me and said, oh, I've got you some Diet Coke or I've got you this or I've got you that, which is very kind and considerate of them. I think it's easier to not drink as a woman than a man. I mean, I did have a bet with my husband at the beginning of the year that he couldn't actually do January because of all of his social commitments and this need men seem to have to drink when they go to the pub. We bet I bet him 100 quid that he couldn't. And then he did at the beginning of the month have a cousin over from Australia and said that he had to start it late on. And we settled on 50-50. He's now not drunk for the rest of the month, but he's given me 50 quid. But the point is, it's just like women who don't drink, like from pregnancy onwards, really, people are like, yeah, whatever. Blokes, I think blokes give each other a really hard time if they're standing there with a 0% Peroni. Yeah, well, I think I think things like zero percent Peroni and you know Erdinger and stuff make it easier for men not to drink. You know, I don't go to the pub as much as I'd like, but I go quite a lot. And there are you do see the zero percent people, and I've haven't noticed them being teased. I think it's easier when you've got something that looks like beer in a glass rather than you know the orange juice, the diet coke, that kind of stuff. But I do agree. I think there is there is pressure, and I have a couple of friends who are my age, who gave up drink. Neither of them had any particular problem with it. I think they just kind of got bored with it or, you know, they wanted to be a lot healthier. And they've both annoyingly sort of given up drink for, for years. And to be honest, I don't see them as much as I did. So that's probably a sign that men do actually need, or some men do actually need drink to, um, um, you know, make those social events more um, entertaining. And just finally, Henry, I mean, you, you come to the conclusion at the end of your piece that a lot of, culture and, and indeed sort of British civilization is built on drinking. So do you think we're kind of perhaps going to lose something if, if the country does move into this more sober, sober era? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what, we, what we'll lose is, is the sort of, you know, the, the wet pubs, the you know, pubs where you, where you just drink. And I think you'll lose, you know, you, you, the, all the upmarket places will be fine. You'll, you'll, you, you, those sort of little pubs where you can get a nice kind of cheapish pint of beer that depend on their regular customers, um, I think you'll you'll lose out. So just the, the, the you'll be left with the the foodie type places. The, the worry is that if drinking does become more abnormal, is that you'll lose those sort of places where you have kind of controlled intoxication. So the people who do have a problem will end up doing it at home and drinking more than ever like during lockdown the problem drinkers had a huge problem because they did they didn't actually have to not drink in front of people because they were at home so i think drinking out in public is kind of is much healthier for drinkers because you are surrounded by and there's a sort of a, a kind of norms that you have to adhere to you can't get absolutely hammered and kind of crawl out when you're in a a normal pub or a restaurant or something but you can do that at home so the worry is that that you'll lose those kind of controlled places and, pro and it'll be worse for problem drinkers and then for people like me I won't have somewhere to get a cheap pint. Although I think we're drinking together more than we ever have which is a weird thing right okay there's a decline in the consumption of alcohol but we're spending a lot of time having cups of tea and coffees together which didn't really happen back when I was growing up like that whole cafe culture Equally, I've always said, you know, the act of being social and drinking together and, you know, sharing in a moment, it doesn't really necessarily matter what's in the glass. 
I think that's what's sometimes lost in this debate. You know, it's interesting to see the piece alongside Henry's that um, Michael Simmons has written, you know, dry wine and how tedious teetotals are when they're moralizing and being boring and maybe they're reformed alcoholics, God forbid, or they're people who are constantly banging on about their health. You know, I've got absolutely no problem with anybody drinking. I don't stop anyone drinking. I don't try and opine. You know, just don't make me drink. That, that's my only request. But I would say that doesn't necessarily preclude, you know, the sort of social interactions that we've had for generations. They don't necessarily need to be sort of steeped in alcohol. But I feel like we're kind of coming together, particularly now if you look at shopping centres and, and sort of things going online. What hasn't gone online, I appreciate Henry's point about sort of online dating and communication between kids, but people are still wanting to get together. Then, you know, every coffee shop you walk past is crammed full of people. So we're sharing these experiences. We just might not be getting absolutely frazzled while we do it. Thank you, Henry and Camilla. Next, could Mongolia be the next geopolitical flashpoint? The Spectator's wildlife columnist, Aidan Hartley, writes in the magazine this week about Mongolia's fate as the country tries to juggle a relationship with China and Russia with desires for a stronger association with the West. He joins me now, along with Sergei Radchenko, the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Well, Aidan, we'll, we'll start with you, since you've written this very good piece about Mongolia, torn at the moment between the East and the West. So I wondered if you could just briefly explain for our listeners uh, the delicate situation that Mongolia finds itself in presently. I think it's been developing over 30 years or so since Mongolia found itself without the support of the country that had um, been so important to its history, the Soviet Union. And that's when they developed this concept of the third neighbor policy, that they didn't want to rely on their only two neighbors, Russia and China. They wanted to develop their relationship with the West and Asian democracies as well. And that's been accelerated by events in that part of the world, uh, most recently because of the invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions imposed on Russia, and also some of the trauma that has uh, been the fallout from the COVID period during which the border with China was closed for three years. At the same time, Mongolia has been going through its own progress towards democratization and making its economy more transparent. Mm -hmm. And they've had a long journey with companies like Rio Tinto to develop their critical metals. And they now find themselves in a very important position because they've got incredibly uh, rich mineral resources which are important to the world, although almost all of them will be sold to China. And they want particularly Western investors to come in to help them to develop their economy. Hmm. And Sergei, I want, I want to ask what you make of the third neighbour policy, which, uh, which Aidan just described. Is it working? 
Uh, it has worked more or less for for the last 30 years. I think Aiden has given a very, very good overview of the purpose of this policy. When you're stuck between two neighbors, there is no escape. You try to be creative and you try to say, OK, let's have another a virtual neighbor, so to speak, the collective West, but also Asian countries, countries like Japan and South Korea, et cetera. And this was a conscious policy choice on the parts of on the part of Mongolians. It has worked. But what I'm. What I'm seeing now is that this policy has come under strain, and that is for an obvious reason. Mongolia is actually physically attached to China and Russia, whereas the West and you know the rest of Asia are further away. So how do you reach out there? How do you do business with them when you're literally integrated physically into this you know, Asian landmass? There is no outlet. And as China and Russia have you know, increasingly come to cooperate more with one another and they as they have become very hostile towards the West, certainly on Russia's part, but there also have been strains in Sino-American relations, for example. Mongolia is finding its space for maneuver shrink uh, very rapidly. And that has, I think, brought the third neighbor policy, uh, I wouldn't say on the chopping block, so to speak, but it is it is in some danger, I think. Hmm. And and Aidan, so we're hearing about why Mongolia wants its closer association with the West, but what would closer diplomatic ties offer to the West from a Western perspective? I, I mean, is it an attractive prospect? I mean, you, you, you sort of mentioned in your piece that Mongolia does have something of a reputation for throwing off foreign investors uh, at times. It's It's had a problematic history of uh, corruption and inefficiency in government. And during the time that I was there recently, I saw that they were going to great lengths to dispel the idea that it was still a corrupt country. I think that the progress in the Rio Tinto copper mine at Oyo Tolgai has been tremendous. And that's going to be the third or fourth largest copper mine in the world. And so I think that they have cleaned up their act in terms of their investors' code and uh, transparency in government. Hmm. What Sergei says is true. Whatever minerals they're able to mine, whatever power they're able to produce, it's all going to get sold to China. And so as long as it's, for example, the recent uranium deal that the French nuclear fuels producer Urano signed with Mongolia to produce uranium, which is all going to go to China, as long as that's attractive, then then it's fine. I think that um, there are going to be always worries amongst the Mongolians about how they might antagonize their neighbors. The, the Russians you know, were dismayed by various things like the neutrality of Mongolia in the United Nations votes since the invasion of Ukraine, but also by, I mentioned in the article, the adoption of the English language as a priority language in education. And you see this huge drive in Mongolia for the education of its young people in mainly Western universities. From the Chinese perspective, there are tensions because there are many more ethnic Mongolians or linguistic Mongolians who live across the border in China itself. And a little bit like some of the suppression of other ethnic groups and nationalities and religions um, in China, there's a prejudice to a degree against the Mongolians in, in the Chinese part of, uh, of, uh, of Mongolia. You know, the, the Mongolians are always going to be worried by what's going to happen 
in terms of their relations with their neighbors. But, you know, they're, they're, they're an incredible people. They've embraced the kind of digitization of their economy. And, you know, this is, is something that I think is, is another way of trying to leapfrog their way out of their physical position in, in Asia. Hmm. Sergey, Aidan mentioned there that uh, Russians felt, he said, dis- dismayed by the fact that Mongolia kept quiet and abstained from the United Nations resolution on um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. How much suspicion is there within Russia, do you think, that Mongolia is shifting more towards the West? Do they feel threatened by this Westernization? You know, I I don't know that the Russians are overly concerned about Mongolia. Mongolia has been a democracy for the better part of the last 30 years. The Russians have had their difficult times with the Mongolians when they uh, basically pushed the Russians out from some of the economic projects uh, where the Russians felt, you know, they absolutely wanted to have uh, to play a part. Um, And so there's been a little kind of dissatisfaction, a little jealousy that Mongolia is doing too much with China, perhaps, or turning towards the West with Rio Tinto and all the talk about democracy and so on and so forth. But I think the Russians understand that Mongolia has limited options, very limited options. Uh, Mongolia depends not just on the Chinese market, but as Aidan points out in his article, takes most of its fuel from Russia, almost all of it. So if Russia turned off the taps, you know, basically Mongolia would come to to complete halt. Uh, you wouldn't be able to drive a car across Mongolia because you won't find the petrol to put in the car. And so I think the Russians have kind of approached Mongolia with a certain distance, I would say, saying, okay, well, it's fine. You're doing certain things. We're going to more or less ignore that, even if we don't like it necessarily. Uh, and, And that is... In contrast to what, for example, the Russians are doing in uh, other parts of the former Soviet empire, I mean, they're invading Ukraine, they're putting pressure, you know, they're sending forces to Kazakhstan when recently there was unrest there. They're acting in, in a very imperialistic fashion. But with Mongolia, they're a little bit more detached, um, uh, I think. Have they been upset about certain things that have happened in Mongolia since Russia's invasion with Ukraine? I won't say necessarily upset, disappointed, maybe. maybe. But what did, what did they expect? Did they expect Mongolia to vote for Russia in the United Nations in connection with Russia's invasion? That would be completely you know, unthinkable. In you know, many other countries abstain. I mean, China also abstained. So that's not something that they could really expect. Mongolia, by the way, is not a treaty ally of Russia, unlike some of the CSTO countries, for example. So I think there's a worry. You know, you know what the worry comes from in Russia? The worry comes from the idea that the West might come and meddle in Mongolian affairs. And we saw that uh, recently with uh, when the Russian um, uh, Russian prosecutor turned up in Beijing and in discussions with his Chinese colleagues said something like, oh, you know, we have to watch out. The West is trying to promote a color revolution or something in Mongolia. And this was in connection, this was after uh, a visit by um, uh, Victoria Nuland to Mongolia, where she made some comments about how America and Mongolia have uh, shared democratic ideals, etc. So the Russians picked up on this and they, oh, look at this, look at this, what are they doing there? But generally speaking, they, they seem to be a little bit more, you know, they're calm about Mongolia, they're not too worried. 
Well, Aidan and Sergey, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And finally, why isn't Lenin as reviled as some of history's other villains? To coincide with the centenary of Vladimir Lenin's death, James Bartholomew writes about the increase in pro-Lenin sympathy, particularly amongst young people. He says that despite Lenin's many crimes, around 15% of young people approve of him. To discuss, I'm joined by Robert Service, the author of Lenin, a biography. So were you surprised by the revelations in James's piece? I was a bit surprised by it because most young people I meet have a pretty balanced view of him and understand that he was the initiator of terror. So it is a, I'd like to know a bit more about uh, what sort of methods the, the pollsters used before I take this as a, an indication of what, what young people really think about Lenin today. Mm. One, one of the points that James makes is that he speaks to various people outside SOAS and they seem to believe that Lenin led a popular revolution against a corrupt and tyrannical czarist regime. So do you think that's part of it? It's sort of seen as the kind of little guy versus the big... Well, I don't want to cast aspersions on SOAS <laughs> students, but perhaps they don't know much Russian history if they specialise in African or Asian politics. It might be too that Lenin, because he was anti-imperialist and people going to SOAS feel that the world back in the early 1900s was a, was a bit of a mess and oppressive for so many people. It might be that uh, so many peoples of the world, uh, it might be that they have a particular angle on Lenin that isn't shared elsewhere in the student community. I'd like to stand up for British students. I don't think they're so dumb as to think that Lenin wasn't a man of terror or that they couldn't, couldn't have sussed him out in all these other unpleasant ways. One of, one of the points that James also makes is that, or as he says, the lie that Lenin fans choose to believe is that if he'd only lived, communist rule would have succeeded. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's, I suppose in my generation, there were lots of people who thought that, who studied and worked on Lenin. A lot of scholars thought that there was a good Lenin and a bad Stalin, I've always thought that this was romantic nonsense and that Lenin founded the one-party state, the terror state, the one-ideology state, and that Stalin expanded the worst features, but he didn't invent them. So, yeah, that, that idea is still around. It's still kicking around that Lenin and Trotsky were somehow fighting against the odds, that they didn't have a dictatorial instinct in their, in their bones, but really they did. They really did. They were the progenitors of this appalling communist system that took root in the USSR. Yeah, it's a dangerous, it's a, a dangerous myth. And for people who haven't yet read your book, Robert, what what's the what what kind of position? What's what's your view on Lenin? How do you, how did you approach the subject? Um, I try to see him in the round. He's a complex character. He's a talented man, a brilliant man, intellectually, a flawed intellectual, nevertheless, 
was the one that he had. He was nowhere near as coherent as he thought he was. He thought he was coherent. He thought Marx was totally coherent rather than a sort of jumble of ideas that he, that he Marx, didn't really pull together even at the end of his life. I think Lenin was a, a leader, a real leader, a natural leader. This is part of the reason why he... He had such an impact at the time. He was intellectually and politically very, very forceful. He didn't, he didn't brook any kind of contradiction. He was so sure that his, his worldview would conquer, would conquer the world. So he was a very, very dangerous man. And he, had, he, he definitely had extremely unpleasant ideas about the need for terror dictatorship. So any... Any de democratic socialist worth his salt or her salt should be able to say without equivocation, this is not the way we're going to go. Can you give a sense perhaps of how he's viewed in, in Russia these days? What's, what's, what's his legacy? How is he seen? Well, he's probably less favoured in Russia than anywhere else in the world. Vladimir Putin says quite pleasant things about Stalin, quite warm things about Stalin every so often, especially in regard to foreign policy, not so much in regard to the great terror. Um, mind you, Putin uses a terror of his own, but Putin never says a good word about Lenin. He holds him to blame for setting up a constitutional federalism that led to the breakup of the Soviet Union itself, which Putin says was a geostrategic catastrophe, geopolitical catastrophe for the whole of world history. So that fondness for Lenin is officially erased, entirely erased in Russia. And I don't get the impression going there that people are sorry to see the the myth of the good Lenin go down the plug hole. And just finally, Robert, it, I mean, it's probably fair to say that communist leaders tend to be viewed slightly differently to fascist leaders from the 20th century, even if they presided over equally tyrannical and murderous regimes. Why do you think that is? I mean, if, if as James says in his piece, if 15% of young people said they felt favourably towards Hitler, that would be... That would be very concerning, but why is it? I mean, it surely should be the same for Lenin. Yeah. Yeah, it should. I think there is a reason for that, and that is that Lenin said he stood for internationalist ideals and was opposed to nationalism, so that there's a sort of feeling that in the end, Communism would bring benefit to the whole of humanity. And that rather suckers people into failing to understand how pernicious Lenin's other ideas were on dictatorship, on terror, on the extirpation of religion, on the state control of culture, all, all those sorts of things that most people 
uh, would be horrified to have realised in their own country. Robert, thank you very much for joining. Pleasure. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of the magazine where you can read everything we've talked about. Also, a quick announcement before you go. Applications to join the Spectator's broadcast team will close on Sunday. So if you have noticed any mistakes in this podcast, any inaccuracies, or perhaps even a sloppy editing job, then you could be exactly who we need. To apply, follow the link in the podcast description. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.